Welcome to the Dreaming Kyoto podcast. I'm Attica Sims. I'm here today with Michael Whittle、uh, in his lovely studio at the HAPS compound. Is this a compound, Michael? Yeah, HAPS setup, yeah. yeah. yeah.、Mm. And what does HAPS stand for again? It's the, It's the Higashiyama Artist Placement Service. Okay. And I guess, it, I think it was established in 2011.、Mm-hmm. And in Higashiyama, there are a lot of Empty properties,、mm-hmm. and、um, they started looking for ways to free up these properties for artists, designers,、mm-hmm. musicians to use. It's an amazing project, and they collaborated with the local government. So, when they visit people to ask if the property is available,、mm-hmm. there's a city worker there with them、mm-hmm. to provide a kind of, yeah, to show that it's not some kind of、mm-hmm. um, fly by night. Company.、Mm-hmm. And、um, how long have you been here now in this studio? In this studio, about six weeks. Okay, so you're very new, eh?、Right? Yeah, still、yeah. getting to meet the neighbors. Great. So, just to describe to you folks what this place is, it's an old、uh, elementary school, I、yeah. believe, and it's, it's beautiful. It's got hardwood floors and、um, the stairs are all worn down. It's a very, very nice place.、Um, let's.、Um, Let's hear a little bit about yourself. Can you give us a brief description of what you do and where you're from? Yeah,、um, I was born in the northeast of England.、Mm-hmm. My mother was working as a nurse at the time.、Mm-hmm. Uh, my father had gone to art school and become a designer、mm-hmm. in advertising.、Um, yeah, so my, I guess my interest in biology, which I went to study later,、uh, was from my mum, just being able to answer any questions、right. we had as kids about.、Um, The body and how it works. And my father used to teach us drawing. He'd give、mm-hmm. us drawing classes while she was working night shifts.、Mm-hmm. So there was always that mix、mm-hmm. from day one.、Mm-hmm. Um, I guess educationally, I couldn't, I couldn't choose both subjects when it came to A levels.、Mm-hmm. So, like by the age of 16, you, literally at a state school, you had to choose between the humanities and the sciences.、Mm-hmm. You couldn't even timetable it. Right. The two subjects together.、Mm-hmm. So I chose the sciences、mm-hmm. and had to leave art for a while,、mm-hmm. which may have been a good thing.、Right. I'm not quite sure. So I wasn't formally trained as, a, as an artist until、okay. I went to university later.、Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about、uh, what kind of art you do? Yeah, I've always studied sculpture.、Mm-hmm. For some reason, I've always been drawn to sculpture. Maybe、mm-hmm. it's because it's a, it's a real object in、mm-hmm. the room with you.、Mm-hmm. Whereas paintings has kind of Artifice about it, it's an accepted lie.、Mm-hmm. It's an image on a canvas that pretends to be sometimes three dimensional.、Um, but fell in love with drawing again because of that, because of the fact that you can have something floating in midair、mm-hmm. and you can play with the scale and you, you're not so concerned about material.、Mm-hmm. So, so I find sculpture very difficult to make and drawing is just very natural. Really? For me, yeah. I'm kind of the opposite. If I can render something in, 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 in real space, I have a much better sense of, of, of,、uh, of actually being able to manifest that object. Whereas, like 2D, like, you know, those tricks with perspective is always really tricky for me. Yeah, I think that's a blessing in、yeah. disguise. Yeah. yeah. Being able to play with those rules. Right. Whereas in sculpture, if you're having something floating, there's always fishing wire there,、mm-hmm. you know, or a stand or something, <laughs> which gives it away. It's almost like a, the magician's tricks revealed. Right. 
um, it came up actually when I when I was doing my PhD. One of the professors asked about the way I was suspending certain works, mm-hmm. and um, asked where would be the best place to have an exhibition. Mm-hmm. And it probably I, the only answer I could think of was in space. You know, <laughs> actually ninety nine point nine nine percent of everything is just floating. Right. And it's only places like on Earth where there's gravity that you've got to deal with. Mm. Um, but on paper, you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw you, I met you first at uh, Petrokuchanai in Kyoto. Yeah. Uh, you presented there, and the theme of your talk was uh, about the diagrams and diagram, diagrammatology. Mythology, yeah. 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 Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that has influenced your work? Yeah, so I, I was, my first degree was in biomedical sciences, which mm-hmm. was three years of study and a year in industry which I spent working for a pharmaceutical company in mm-hmm. Germany. Um, and it's just, you know, it's the visual language of science. That's what, that's what they use, mm-hmm. diagrams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just immersed in that through all that period of study. And so when it came to drawing, the natural way for me to present objects was diagram- mm-hmm. diagrammatically. Mm-hmm. It's a very refined not so much shading or texture, mm-hmm. um, kind of skeletal images. And when it came to choosing a subject for the PhD, um, looking at all the images that I'd collected over the years in my studio and what it was, what was the common thread running through them all, it was that they were diagrams in some mm-hmm. way or other. A lot of my favorite artists um, are making diagrammatic works mm-hmm. in very similar ways. So, um, sort of I think some of Picasso's work from his, they called it analytic cubism Mm -hmm. because it was very, very diagrammatic, although they didn't use the word diagrammatic at the time to describe it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just fits right in there and became part of my thesis Mm -hmm. as how this has developed over the last hundred years or so Mm -hmm. as a theme in in art. Mm And so, it, up here on your wall right now, you have a couple of uh, works that you're that you're working on that are knots. Can you can you describe what you're working on right I now? I can describe them, but they're, yeah. they're difficult to talk about. I mean, new, <laughs> new works always. I am hoping to make something that even I'm not sure what it is, uh-huh. to be honest. And it normally takes a while to to figure out. Well, maybe what just drove me to make it. Right. But yeah, they're, they're two what they call prime knots. Mm-hmm. And they're from a table of a vast number of these knots, which are the most basic um, possible knots that can exist. Mm-hmm. And none of the knots on the table are the same. Mm-hmm. And so in mathematics, I guess knot, knot theory um, uses closed loops mm-hmm. to depict the knots, and that's what these works are. So I've re reimagined them um, as almost like uh, very organic botanical structures, like a kind of wreath of branches or twigs. Mm-hmm. So they, they, yeah, I've kind of taken them from this very abstract world of pure mathematics and mm-hmm. reimagined them as organic objects. But I'm still not sure where it's going. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's half finished. Mm-hmm. And it's part of a series of works that are based on, on knots. So basically, what what you're doing then is you're taking these these diagrams or yeah. or um, ways of um, 
ways of representing information and yeah. you're, you're finding beauty in it and, and creating a work of art from those. Yeah, I think in the most basic terms, I'm really interested in the shape that information takes, uh-huh. like the way it's manifested mm. in the world, whether the tree diagrams, which is like one of the most successful and best-known ways of depicting you know, heredity or mm-hmm. biology or... Mm-hmm. or um, yeah, even some of the most incredible contemporary diagrams, like maps of the the known universe, mm-hmm. like you can download now onto your laptop yeah. and explore. Um, yeah, so they're very contemporary, especially in this kind of information age. But they're also ancient objects mm-hmm. that date back to the first cave wall maps or mm-hmm. uh, ancient structures like Stonehenge in England, mm-hmm. where you have stones aligning with the motion of the moon mm-hmm. and the sun. Um, so yeah, it's it's ways that information shapes information takes. Right. I'd say that I'm very interested in. So you did your PhD studies at Kyoto University, is that correct? Yeah, at Kyoto City University of the Arts. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's that in Japanese again? Kyoto Shiritsu Bijutsu Daigaku. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what? Why did you decide to pursue your PhD there? Yeah. So um. I'd studied at the Royal College of Art in London for two mm-hmm. years, and mm-hmm. they have an excellent exchange program okay. with Kyoto City University of the Arts. Uh-huh. And the professor who set that up is still living here. Mm-hmm. He worked as a Zen monk for quite a few years mm-hmm. and was one of the first people to do the exchange mm-hmm. and then built the established stronger connections over there. Mm-hmm. So my wife, who also went on the exchange program the year before I did mm-hmm. to the Royal College, but we didn't meet mm-hmm. at the time. And then I got the exchange the year after, 2004, mm. and came to Kyoto. Mm. So that was my introduction to Japan, and never imagined that I'd come back for like almost a decade and uh, raise a family here, yeah. do my PhD here. Mm. So you first came here just as an, just on an exchange while yeah. you were studying at the... The Royal, Royal College, on, a, on the yeah. Master's course okay. in Sculpture. All right. And then applied for the Monbusho scholarship. Mm-hmm. I applied twice. I was unsuccessful the first year, mm-hmm. and reapplied the next year and managed to. I was very lucky to get a place, mm. and that was my chance to come and do the PhD, mm. which took three, four years. Yeah. So you came on Monbusho. Yeah. 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 Very good. What was your interview process like for that? Because I, I I applied once as well and didn't get it, and it was like the worst experience of my life like the <laughs> it's very intense yeah. yeah the interview like I was just like I left and I was just like sweating and like, <laughs> my heart was beating really fast because I think that the um, just the guy at the, the consulate was just basically a jerk <laughs> I think it really depends who you get especially because then then probably not going to be a specialist in the field that you're applying for right like 90% of the time right so I don't know I don't know how much the interviewers knew about fine art mm-hmm. and the second time I actually brought work along with me right. to show them an actual physical object, which made that's much more helpful. Mm-hmm. Gave something to talk about so they could actually see the mm-hmm. real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the first time I went, I actually had a, a blood infection. I had I'd been wow. bitten by a mosquito yeah. and the bite became infected. I then got sunburned and then flew back to England. So my whole leg had swollen up which might have led to me not getting it. Right. I almost collapsed as I left the building. Wow. Left the embassy. That's a good story, but yeah, second year was successful. Mm -hmm. 
So you completed your um, your PhD in 2014, you said earlier? That's right, That's yeah. correct, okay. Yeah. And um, what did you do between then and now? I took a year to go through the corrections. Um, mm-hmm. Because a lot of the PhDs are put directly online now, uh-huh. so I didn't actually have to make a book or bind it or submit an actual physical object. Right. Just the data is a PDF. Mm-hmm. And so I took... Because that's available worldwide mm-hmm. on the internet, you have to be quite careful with copyright images. So mm-hmm. a lot of the year was spent contacting artists mm-hmm. to ask for permission to use their work, mm-hmm. um, which actually worked out very well and helped yeah. make connections and introduced me to people I probably wouldn't have met otherwise. And then, yeah, a year working in my wife's studio. Mm-hmm. I had a space with her and, um, yeah, having two or three exhibitions. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into HAPS? It's a yearly application depending on how many people are leaving. So artists normally stay for three years okay. before they have to make way for the next mm-hmm. group of artists to apply. Mm-hmm. And yeah, friends of friends had applied before. Another close friend had had the studio before me mm-hmm. and introduced me to the, the project. Okay. And I went for the interview with uh, Endo-san and we talked about the work. and. Mm-hmm. He's into. He's very into social projects. So he's interested in how my work could be adapted to a wider audience, mm-hmm. which I was excited about because I'm interested in showing my work to scientists or yeah. non-art specialists, mm-hmm. which I think is quite an interesting uh, audience. Mm-hmm. And how do you see how do you see yourself doing that, expanding your work outside the realm of just art? Um, a lot of the projects are based on specific research papers by people. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are still alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I contact them afterwards and um, ask them about their projects, get some information. And, um, so it's interesting to develop the project with that inside knowledge mm-hmm. or contact. So it's very interesting, the Kyoto University Stem Cell Research Center, mm-hmm. which has become very famous recently because one of the researchers there won a Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. And the professor who's running the, the center has retired and sold his company and wants to invest in a scholarship for young scientists and artists to work on projects. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that'll be uh, one possibility, probably early next year, mm-hmm. to work with researchers there and get some funding, start an exhibition mm-hmm. at the venue. So I'm, I'm quite interested in working with a different audience outside of contemporary art. Right. Yeah, the representation of, of data in visual form is something that's really, really important nowadays, especially with more and more complex uh, information, you know, complexity of the data, big data is coming mm-hmm. out, that it's, it's really hard for people to understand it, but being able to interpret things in a way that is visually understandable yeah. is, is really important right now. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that your work can, can, can directly maybe inform the science of, 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 of data representation? Not really. I've never really pictured myself as taking part in that. I'm very interested in it, yeah. but it's a very difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite different to what, to what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm f- I think one of the most fundamental things under, underlying all my works, like super objectivity, mm-hmm. where this philosophical idea that you can remove yourself completely mm-hmm. from what you're researching as a scientist and of course, it's a, it's an impossible goal. Yeah. Um, but I think there's 
interesting similarities there between physics and like Zen philosophy and mm-hmm. haiku even. Mm-hmm. So when I, I was young, I discovered this amazing book as a young art student um, by Erwin Schrödinger, mm-hmm. the physicist. Yeah, called What Is Life. Okay. And it's a very small book. You can, I think, you can download it from Stanford University's homepage for free mm-hmm. as a PDF. But he's, he's basically as if he's an alien scientist looking down on Earth through a telescope and seeing what makes us tick. And very clinically and objectively describing human life. So he calls food negative entropy and describes <laughs> the way that these strange little bipedal creatures seek out negative entropy right. regularly throughout the day. And, you know, you switch the lights off and they all fall asleep. You switch them on and they wake up. And it's, it's an amazing viewpoint, very objective, but it's beautiful to me to read that. Right. Um, I think that's the power of especially physics. Mm-hmm. To keep that, to try and keep that distance. Yeah. And a lot of people think that's very cold and clinical, but there's a certain beauty to it, I think, which is the link to haiku. So you have three very objective statements about mm-hmm. reality, with certain syllables, mm-hmm. the patterns of syllables. On so the theme is normally the a season. There mm-hmm. should be reference to a season. But from those three objective statements, you have the most profound subjective right. experience on reading it, where you connect directly with the poet. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's always been a big draw and one of the reasons to try and study Japanese to read haiku. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, uh, the juxtaposition of the three lines. Like there's something that's like intangible. You can't quite place what it is yeah. that, that affects you. But it's yeah. something about the combination of the three that, like... Sometimes when you it, try and explain, it, it kills it, you know? Yeah, right. So one of my favorite ones is by a guy called Boncho. He's a 17th century yeah. haiku writer. He was a doctor, actually, which is interesting. Okay. And um, his most famous haiku is, in English is, um, The brushwood, though cut for fuel, has started to bud. Huh. And it's just some... It's a beautiful reference to death. Yeah. And springtime Mm -hmm. and so this this piece of wood that's been cut to make a brush or that's been cut to burn is showing this last signs of life Mm -hmm. you know and so there's all sorts of references to ikebana Mm -hmm. you know you cut the flower and it starts to die and you appreciate the beauty but again if you try and explain it over explain it too much you kill it instantly absolutely which for me is the interesting difference i'd read between chinese poetry and japanese poetry Mm -hmm. So with the Chinese poem, you'd say, for example, I'm oversimplifying, but it's raining today, I'm feeling melancholy. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're saying your subjective feelings, you're giving the game away. But maybe a Japanese haiku would say, the sound of the rain on the tiles mm-hmm. keeps me awake at night or something. Mm-hmm. And you're allowed to fill that kind of subjective void with your own feelings, mm-hmm. your own experience. and Very, very powerful. So the subjective uh, expression of the the writer is not stated explicitly. It's like literally, it's between the lines, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's interesting. So yeah. for me, that that's the kind of connection of that objective, third person mm-hmm. view of the world mm-hmm. and haiku. Aside from haiku, do you have any other uh, interests in in traditional Japanese culture or art or anything like that? Yeah, many. I mean, I I was very interested in no plays, no dramas. 
um, where all the characters that are being played on stage are dead. Yeah. It's, it's literally a theater of ghosts. Right. And I guess one of the oldest th- forms of theater still existing. Mm-hmm. And so you, the actor, the no actor, would put the mask on and be taken over by the spirit of the character that they're playing. Mm. And there's even a ritual before they come onto a stage where they, they go through this initiation right, and put the mask on mm-hmm. and are blessed by Shinto priests. And mm-hmm. So that, that was a very stark, incredibly boring at times. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the audience falls asleep. Yeah. And then the very Japanese thing, in the middle of the break, you have this, I forgot what it's called, the, the kind of comedy act, yeah, yeah, very yeah. slapstick humour. I can't remember what it's called either. It's not Nakugo, but... No, it's, it's, it's very, kind of like the predecessor very physical yeah. comedy. Right. It's just a kind of complete break from what you've just <laughs> To wake the crowd up, right? Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I like yeah, that I've contrast. Seen, I've seen No twice. Right. And I think both times was like on a Sunday afternoon and I was like hungover both times and fell asleep both times. <laughs> but I, uh, my friend that gave me the tickets... Um, I was like, I was like, yeah, I fell asleep, but everybody else was sleeping too. And she's like, she's like, oh, you're supposed to. Like that's kind of part of the that's part of the thing is to kind of like lull you into this like <laughs> like semi dreaming state to experience the play. And I was like, interesting, oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that. that's really right. that's really quite interesting. So like the actors, like they don't mind at all if you know half the audience is sleeping. They're like, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> We've succeeded. <laughs> yeah, but some of the older. Audience members had a, were very skilled at waking up just at the right time right. to catch the drama or the right. highlight, and then dozing off again. Mm. Have you uh, practiced any traditional Japanese arts? No, I took. I did take a couple of classes in ikebana, mm-hmm. like flower arranging, mm-hmm. and found it incredibly formulaic, mm. kind of suffocatingly so. Yeah, I probably should have stuck with it, but um, started the PhD course mm-hmm. and ran out of time. Right. Um, that's something I'm interested in, but the rules behind these beautiful, graceful mm-hmm. structures are, are very interesting. Yeah, and the the diagrammed as well yeah. in books. Mm-hmm. Um, so there aren't many diagrams in Japanese culture, but that's one particular kind mm-hmm. of ikebana diagrams. Have you ever been to the? Um, I think it's called the Makino Botanical Gardens in Kochi City. There's a really famous, no, no, no. there's a really famous uh, botanist in Japan. He basically like cataloged almost all species of plant in in Japan. Uh, and I think his name is Makino. I could be mistaken about that, but he's got a um, there's a museum inside the botanical garden, and I think you would love it because he. I mean, the drawings are gorgeous. Oh, absolutely right. it's stunning. A, it's a visual catalog with yeah, all the details. Yeah, all of his all of his botanical garden uh, uh, gardens botanical diagrams yeah. that he sketched out of all these different, different yeah. plants. Yeah, it's really, really phenomenal. So if you ever get a chance to go to Kochi, I think you should check that Thanks out. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. I'll put, yeah, I'll put it on my list for sure. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about Haps. Um, do you know much about the background of the place or where it started, what their mission is? I don't. Um, I know that Mizuki Endo-san, who uh-huh. kind of heads the, the committee, mm-hmm is involved a lot with the government, especially with the up-and-coming Tokyo Olympics. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a lot of funding going into art science projects and mm-hmm. culture projects. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the Ministry for Culture is moving to Kyoto to set up offices okay. next year sometime. Mm-hmm. So th- these, is all, these are all projects that are going to definitely raise the profile of, cult- of culture and mm-hmm. contemporary art in, in Kyoto. Right. 
Um, aside from that, I'm not very sure. Okay. Is this a city-funded organization, or is it uh, funded by the National uh, Ministry of whatever? I think... So this is the main site, right. the, the old elementary school, right. and I think that's funded or part, supported by the city. Okay. Um, so we pay a very basic fee for electricity and amenities. And, mm-hmm. um, but it's pretty much rent-free. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And how many artists are in residency here? There are six rooms altogether, but there's two partners. So there's a husband-wife partner next door. And then there's two young designers and Mm -hmm. artists who work downstairs from... They're back and forth between Tokyo and Kyoto. Mm -hmm. They're on the the first floor. So altogether it's eight of us. Mm. And from a very different range of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's interesting. He seems to have picked... Uh, so one of the, the youngest artists here is a, she's a hunter mm-hmm. who goes out hunting wow. around Kyoto Prefecture. Wow. And brings back animal skins. Huntress. Right? Huntress. <laughs> huntress. Yeah, so she, that's very interesting work. I'd like to see more of her project. Yeah, definitely. Others are sounds cool. socially engaged projects with um, technology. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the couple next door mm-hmm. um, who seem to be very active. Yeah, I just visited them before I came here. It's an amazing <laughs> space. It's it like is. Kind of, yeah. yeah, the little little art tech lab over yeah. there. Very nice. Um, so, what you said that you grew up, or not? You grew up. You studied sure. um, more in the, the 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 scientific side of things. Were you always interested and engaged in art during that time, like more as like a hobby, or did you come back to it later? So I, when I did my foundation course, mm-hmm. uh, when I started university, it was still compulsory in Scotland at the time, mm-hmm. and I did a one-year basic training. Mm-hmm. I would, would practice drawing and uh, model making, mm-hmm. and I was the worst in the class by mm-hmm. far. And um, how old were you at this time? I would have been... 20, 21, 20. Okay, so this is your university days now? Yeah, okay. yeah. So I just started my second degree. Uh-huh. The first was in biology, the second in sculpture. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a, a mixed blessing. Mm-hmm. Like I had a lot of catching up to do. But then again, it meant that I wasn't trained in the traditional sense of being mm-hmm. able to draw right. from a model and from a figure. Right. Um, which wasn't such a problem mm-hmm. if you're drawing diagrammatically it helps a lot yeah but earlier than that like when you were in um, high school sorry I'm yeah. going to use the American terms high school or even elementary school were you were you always engaged in, in, in art were you interested in art were you drawing or sculpting during that period or were you mostly focused on on the more scientific side of things yeah as a science undergraduate I, mm-hmm. I was only drawing diagrams yeah basically okay day in day out of yeah. cells and cellular structures uh-huh anatomical cross-sections, things right. like that. So right. that was something we, we had to do okay. pretty much weekly. Yeah, um, Yeah. My, my father always had art around the house mm-hmm. and collects all sorts of images from mm-hmm. different time periods and all over the world. So that was always there, yeah. it was always present. Right. And he was always drawing and making things with mm-hmm. us. Um, but there was definitely a three or four year period where I was only making, only drawing diagrams. Mm-hmm and didn't, didn't make any art as such. Yeah. And then during my, my year out in Hamburg, 
1997. Mm-hmm. They just opened a new wing of the Kunsthalle, the big mm-hmm. contemporary art museum, mm-hmm. which was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It just blew me away. And that was really what set me on the track to, to want to study art. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my professors were, thanks to them, they were very open-minded about it. Mm-hmm. So originally after graduating, I was going to miss the master's course in science and go straight to a PhD in Minnesota mm-hmm. to go and study there. And wanted to take a year out to study art, mm-hmm. to have as a hobby more than anything else. Right. And went back to live with my parents in Newcastle and studied at Newcastle College of Art. Mm-hmm. And in that surrounding, is just that was the, the perfect environment. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't think, this is probably another subject, I don't think art's really a subject that can be taught as such. Mm-hmm. You can teach skills, maybe it's more about a, the dialogue you have with your peers. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about what your teachers uh, said about your work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, yeah, that environment for me was magic. Mm-hmm. And let, me, let me ask you a little bit more about what you just said. That's an interesting statement. Art can't really be taught. Right. Can, you, can you tell me a little bit more, like go into a little bit more detail about why art can't be taught? I think it comes down to creativity, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think that's basically what you can't really teach directly. Mm-hmm. You can't sit someone down and teach them to be creative. Mm-hmm. I think you can set up an environment which challenges them and allows them to develop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think basically it's like this, this, it's like art school and Zen Buddhism, the, the perfect embodiment of lateral thinking. Mm-hmm. Like you're just pushed to think laterally. Mm-hmm. from morning to night and I think that's that's how you can allow art to develop but mm-hmm. I don't think it can be taught in the traditional sense that you could teach physics or chemistry right. I'm sure a physics or chemistry teacher would disagree with me and say that it, it's very similar mm-hmm. you set up an environment and they have to learn how to mm-hmm. become a scientist or a researcher on their own mm-hmm. um, and Refresh my memory real quick. Yeah. Lateral thinking versus, is it linear thinking? The two different, you said, you said thinking laterally yeah. every day is like one of the keys to, to, to harnessing your creativity. You didn't actually say that. But, um, but linear thinking, is that, is that the correct term for doing something that is more like logical step-by-step reasoning that you would do in like, say, for example, mathematics or... Um, Maybe in logic, mm-hmm. in mathematical logic, but... For me, as a young scientist Mm -hmm. going to study art, one of the most amazing and profoundly moving events was when I discovered the work of David Bohm, Mm -hmm. who's an English physicist. Um, And he was a contemporary of Einstein and worked with him, Mm -hmm. worked on the Manhattan Project in the Mm -hmm. States. And I read a book of his called On Creativity, Mm -hmm. where it's a physics physicist's uh, idea of what is creativity, Mm -hmm. different types of thought. And he actually details the differences between thought and thinking, Mm -hmm. which I won't go into in detail because it's far too complicated for for me to do that. Um, But I really recommend the book. And once I'd read it, I just read anything I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. There's another lovely series of letters between him and an artist called Charles Mm Biderman, where between 60 and 69, they corresponded Mm -hmm. uh, almost every week, Mm -hmm. every month. And I read all those letters and it's just eye-opening for me Mm -hmm. to see creativity being talked about not only within art, but within science yeah. and within mathematics and physics. Yeah, I think that that, 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 that concept of lateral thinking, yeah. right? It's like, you know, you a lot of times we think A to B to C to D, and then sometimes 
you know, people who are creative, they, they, they have this lateral way of thinking. They're making associations with things that are not in necessarily in the box, right? So they're, they're taking something like, you know, the bird just flew by and it's like, oh, I just tie that in with what I, with what I'm working on and oh, I have an epiphany and there's something new that I can work with, right? So you're taking in Absolutely, a yeah. lot more information just yeah. environmentally, right? So not something that is um, so, um, I guess, uh, I, 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 I can't think of the word right now. Okay, but, not uh, such an obvious yeah. connection. Right, right, right. Or not such a superficial connection. Mm-hmm. So again, this is the same with Zen Buddhism, which mm-hmm. I'm just admiring more and more the yeah. more I know about it. Um, whether the students or the young novice monks would have to go and they'd be given a koan mm-hmm. by the head monk and they'd go away and think about that. And they'd, they'd, they'd really need to be thinking laterally, mm-hmm. completely outside the box. Yeah. Um, and Bohm talks about it really well, given examples from Einstein, where someone will make such a leap, mm-hmm. such a connective leap, that for years afterwards it's going to take an army of PhD students and researchers to fill in the small gaps right. after that huge connection's been made. I was reading a book recently. Let me let me pull up the title real quick. Um, Where good ideas come from by mm-hmm. Stephen Johnson. Have you have you read this book? Are you aware? No, I've never heard of it. Uh, it's very very good. You should definitely check it out. It's yeah. a uh, basically a uh, the natural history of innovation is the subtitle. So it talks a lot about that about that being able to being able to integrate and synthesize uh, kind of things that are not directly related to whatever the problem the problem is right mm-hmm. so you're, you're you're trying to think through a problem logically but then oh you know if you have the capability of bringing something in on the side then, then you can you can find the step that you need in order to come up with the, the solution that you need. Yeah, yeah yeah and i think the beauty of art is that you do that for no real reason yeah and it gives it. you that right. possibility yeah. like you don't have a you really have an end goal inside mm-hmm. So whereas with a scientist, if Einstein hadn't made his discovery, mm-hmm. a certain discovery, or even Darwin's a better example, there were people working at the time mm-hmm. on the same ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, Watson and Crick and DNA. Mm-hmm. And Rosalind Franklin, Franklin you know, probably should have got the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. So there's the kind of, in science that can happen mm-hmm. because you're, you're observing something in the universe. But mm-hmm. whereas art, you know, if someone like Picasso had made a certain painting, it's the chances are almost zero that someone would have made the same work. Mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting. There's a difference for me. Yeah. And yeah, so getting back to what I said with this idea that art gives you the freedom mm-hmm. to let you play mm-hmm. and make those connections for no real reason whatsoever. Right. Um, it was very exciting. Mm. And so going back to your, you said you took a year off to study art and you never went back. Yeah. 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 So what was it that hooked you there that made you want to devote the rest of your life to, to being an artist? It wasn't helped by, one, I think it was the, the professor who was in charge of Leeds Medical School at the time came over for mm-hmm. our graduation and he'd, he'd, we were introduced and he'd said, oh, wonderful, wonderful, you're going to study art, just don't let them distract you. <laughs> Come back, you know? Yeah. It's pretty and it's nice, but that's it. And right. it's comments like that that made me think, actually, I'm going to be slightly more open to the chance of, yeah, maybe becoming an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. 
I really I love the idea of transformative experiences. I right, feel like right. that everybody everybody in their life they have these things that happen to them. Hopefully everybody. Uh, if nobody has a transformative experience in their life, I feel like they're lacking in some way. But I feel like most people have some sort of experience that it's like when you you go through this experience and after that you feel like you're a completely different person. You, you've changed into something else. Um, was that an experience or do you have any transformative experiences that you could tell I think most artists do in one yeah. way or another. It's something that got them on the road in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them are, you know, kind of cliched. So as a child, I'd been with my father in the, he had a vegetable garden, mm-hmm. and an allotment, which was a kind of private field divided up into little plots. Mm-hmm. And I was going to get water from a stream with a bucket mm-hmm. and fell into the stream and got stuck. Mm-hmm. And for the first time realized that I, I might die. Yeah. I was very young, I must be five, six maybe, mm-hmm. my earliest memory. And managed to drag myself out and didn't die. And, mm-hmm. you know, but it suddenly made me aware of the kind of finiteness of... Finiteness of... Finiteness mm-hmm. of life. Right. Yeah. And I guess the big, the big questions, the deep questions of why we're here, what do we do in, given this little time? And mm-hmm. how do you want to lead the best possible life for you? Mm-hmm. How can you be the best possible person you can be? So you think, started thinking about that when you were five? I'm sure I've really, really added to that memory over time <laughs> and kind of built it into a myth, you know? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of artists do that. They kind of mythologize that moment when they kind of realize that sure. this is what they wanted to do. Yeah, it's all about your interpretation of the experience. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we were talking about before earlier, right? Like you, you want to be as objective as possible in some ways, but it's it's really quite impossible to do that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So you you mentioned you just said that trying to live the best possible life that you can. Yeah. How are you doing that now? Um. It's pretty difficult financially. I mean, a lot of the time it's famine or feast. Mm-hmm. Especially Kyoto isn't an art center of the world mm-hmm. economically mm-hmm. and so we we work with galleries in Korea and New York and London mm-hmm. um, and we send work abroad for art fairs so that mm-hmm. manages to keep us ticking over work with a very nice gallery in Kyoto called um, Koju Contemporary Art mm-hmm. and they travel a lot I think that's been a big change in recent years for art galleries they've tended to make most of their money from art fairs mm-hmm. all over the world Basel, I think Koju is going to Miami this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just been a big fair in London, mm-hmm. and it is—it's possible to do that now, business-wise, mm-hmm. through Skype and arranging mm-hmm. meetings and mm-hmm. posting. Drawings are easier than sculpture. Mm-hmm. Rolling drawings up and selling them abroad to framers. Right. And, um, yeah, but I think living outside of the system that's set up in the society, like mm-hmm. the normal way of doing things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always going to be tricky and mm-hmm. difficult. Um, a lot of the art students I was really just shocked in Kyoto don't expect to be artists when they graduate. Mm-hmm. There's, there's always a certain hardcore group who will, no matter what. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, for the last year, uh, spend a lot of time at job interviews, mm-hmm. looking for uh, salary work. And right. it's, it's saddening in a way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they've, they've studied art and it's enriching their life mm-hmm. from that point onwards. And... But to kind of find alternative ways around things, 
although I don't like the myth of the star- starving artist, and I think it's, it's a terrible thing for artists, there is something about not having enough money that forces you, forces you to think laterally. Mm-hmm. You find other ways of doing things. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up from a not well-to-do family, yeah. and like a lot of my younger younger days, basically from when I was 18 until I came to Japan, I was just basically being, you know, half hippie and, you know, just living from paycheck to paycheck because that's how I wanted to. And it was, yeah, I feel like I'm actually almost missing something now that I have, you know, a better paying job, right? There was always... Stability. <laughs> yeah, there was yeah. always like something like you're, you know, very... Uh, what's, how, how can I say? Something very, very interesting in... in, in and you have to be very resourceful yeah, that's in a, making that's sure that you that you do sure. stay afloat, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so going back to the good life, right? So what is a good life to you? So obviously making you know making money is is not so important to you. You're more content with pursuing your passion in art. Um, so what is the best life for you? Like what it, like philosophically speaking, like how do you how do you approach life? What's your approach to life? Um, to living outside of the studio. Uh, yeah. I don't know, yeah, perfect day would be spent in the studio, I think, for me. Uh-huh. Um, I get most of my, a lot of my energy from being on my own uh-huh. and reading a lot. A lot of inspiration comes from literature. Mm-hmm. It's been a huge influence on the way I live and the mm-hmm. way I make art. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lot of, a lot of inspiration from poetry. Always mm-hmm. try and make time for poetry. Mm-hmm. I haven't read, well, I've read very little while I was doing the PhD. I was mm-hmm. only reading around the subject. Yeah. But um, I think that's, it's a real gift mm-hmm. to, to your experience of life. Poetry, art, mm-hmm. um, music, definitely. Mm-hmm. Just, I think poetry helps just draw your attention to the subtle details in life that make it deeper, richer, more interesting. And, mm-hmm. Who are some of your favorite artists? Or not artists, who are some of your favorite writers? Writers. Um, When I moved to London Mm -hmm. and got my place on the RCA sculpture course, I decided I was going to take on James Joyce's Ulysses Mm. and um, got to chapter 17, which is called Ithaca. And it's the most incredible thing I've ever read. Really? It's basically just over 300 questions and answers. Hmm. It's in the form of a, something called a catechism, which is like the, the priest asks something and the service or the congregation replies. Right. But it's done in a kind of scientific response. Mm. And so you have some, I think the, the main character loses his keys and he's been walking through the city at night and gets home and he has to climb over a fence. But it's described scientifically. Mm-hmm. A mass was lifted over the fulcrum of the top of the fence, dropped a certain distance with an inertia of such and such and lands on the floor. And he then makes a cup of tea and when he switches the tap on, Joyce describes the whole water system of Dublin. Mm. Like it's almost too much, it's like Google Maps. He zooms mm. in and out mm-hmm. on the, ma- like the, the microcosm and the macrocosm. And it was a, it's an amazing chapter. And he, I researched it a little for my PhD and he describes it as the ugly, ugly duckling of the book. Mm-hmm. Stylistically, it's gonna get a, a lot of detractors but once you get what he's doing this mm-hmm. ob- romantic objective collision it's it's incredible and it's the last chapter of the book that he finished mm. so it's the chapter that he wrote 
and completed last. Right. Even though it's not the actual last chapter. Right. So I think he was it. That was just a brilliant moment for me. And I never quite figured out what it was about it that I liked until I realized it's this objective view mm-hmm. colliding with a romantic mm-hmm. novel, mm. um, which was brilliant. Also, another modernist writer is Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. uh, To the Lighthouse. And there's a very small kind of chapter that breaks up the two halves of the book mm-hmm. where the main character actually dies mm-hmm. in the second half of the book. And it's called Time Passes. And it's just describing this building on an, isle, on an island overlooking the coast and the lighthouse. I think it's on an island, on the coast, overlooking a lighthouse where nobody's living there. Mm-hmm. And it's written completely in the third person. And it just describes time passing mm-hmm. from a kind of, open, what's the word? Omniscient? Om- omnipresent? Right. God's eye view of this scene. Mm-hmm. And absolutely amazing to take out all the subjective authoress from the novel and just describe stark reality without humans there almost mm-hmm. like you know on the moon right there's nobody there and right and again i didn't know what it was about the chapter till till i did my phd and realized it's this romantic objective mm-hmm. what is the romantic obje- objective can you can you go into a bit more detail about that yeah it's the title for my thesis uh-huh. um so in the romantic period there was a sudden division between art and science, mm-hmm. and the two subjects began to distrust each other, mm-hmm. and a lot of it had to do with Newton describing light using numbers. He mm-hmm. deconstructed the rainbow and made it a kind of a formula, mm-hmm. and artists and philosophers in England and Germany at the time distrusted that, mm-hmm. and they thought um, it was very cold, clinical, objective, Mathema- mathematics was the opposite of how life should be lived, to live the perfect life mm-hmm. um, as a romantic. And so that I wanted to look at how um, artists were using the objective language of diagrams and science to make subjective romantic artworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sol LeWitt is a famous American minimalist artist who makes incredible diagrammatic artworks that mm-hmm. exist, he said, in a kind of platonic realm so they exist as a set of instructions which you buy and you then remake the artwork following these instructions you get an instruction set a certificate and a diagram and you can make that artwork in your house and then erase it and make it somewhere else and that's fascinating what's the uh, the artist's name again? Sol LeWitt Sol LeWitt Sol LeWitt yeah okay so just brilliant artist and um looking at how he used the diagram to do that, Mm -hmm. but how he snuck in the subjective into that objective, very methodical, logical system for creating his artwork. So you'd have certain works where the the person who makes it, you'd see the movement of their hand. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be steady. Right. Or they'd choose a certain color. And he tried to be as objective as possible. Mm -hmm. But there's a lovely instance where he saw an artwork of his and demanded that it be erased and remade more mm. beautifully mm-hmm. even though he said he claimed not to be interested in beauty right um, for him the art was in the making of it and the kind of and when was he when was he active um, I guess the start of American minimalism so it's around the time of like Donald Judd 
um, these artists were reacting against abstract expressionism. And mm-hmm. um, it's going to be embarrassing, but it's difficult for me to date. Ah. I guess the 1960s. Okay. That was my introduction to art, by the way. That was the first book on art that I bought in mm-hmm. Hamburg, was a book on these kind of conceptual yeah. artists making work. It's like primitive remixing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I made yeah. this thing and here's the instruction so you can go and remake it and remix it if you want. Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it, with all the very subtle differences that each work will have. Right. Um, What book, I always ask this question, and I stole it from another podcast, but what book or books do you, have you most frequently gifted or given to someone? There's two. One Mm -hmm. comes straight to mind is Ray Kurzweil, The Singularities Near. Oh, yes. Which I give out in a kind of semi-religious way. Uh Uh-huh. blew me away when I first read it. Absolutely. The the scope of this guy's thought. Mm -hmm. Like, what a mind. And talk about, talk about thinking laterally. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a very gifted inventor Mm -hmm. and, you know, predicted so many big events in technological history. So that's definitely one of them. Uh, Also, this book by the Japanese manga artist, I've Mm -hmm. given that to quite a few artists. And what's the title of it? This particular one's called Niwa, or, mm-hmm. or Garden, and the artist is Yokoyama Yuichi. Mm-hmm. And he's becoming more popular in Europe now, there's English translations of his works. Yeah. It's really fascinating and kind of bizarre, the art is, I believe. Yeah. Can you, can you tell a little bit more about this? There's something, I, I read, um, have you read the, li- the Library of Babel, or Babel's Library, by Louis Borges? Yeah. I haven't read it, but I know it. So the idea is that reality exists as a giant library Mm -hmm. of these little, almost like a beehive of hexagonal units. Mm -hmm. And in each each room is a certain number of books. And the library looked at as a whole Mm -hmm. um, contains every possible book that could be ever written Mm -hmm. using the alphabet. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there'll be one volume somewhere that has the perfect word-for-word copy of the, the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Or, and there'll be another copy that has everything exactly right, except there'll be one spelling mistake somewhere. Mm-hmm. And every possible combination of that exists somewhere in this library. So, somewhere in the library, there's a story of why the library was made and who made it. Uh-huh. And the civilization grows up and evolves in this library and you have heretics who attempt to burn the library down mm-hmm. and others who attempt to find the holy book mm-hmm. which is the reason for them existing there but it's it's actually very cold it's actually like what biologists call design space genetically like mm-hmm. every possible genetic combination that mm-hmm. could exist and evolution plots its way through this design space of all possible combinations and picks the right one for mm-hmm. the right job and this book by Yoko Yamauchi is very much, it made me think of that. Mm-hmm. So the characters in it enter a garden and you're not told why, why it exists, why they enter. And they explore this kind of world of objects. Mm-hmm. And in the, there's a reference to, I'm sure, Borges' library in there where every possible book is there. Mm-hmm. Or another scene where an aeroplane flies overhead and drops postcards. And the characters pick up all the postcards and realize that when they put them together, it makes a one-on-one map of the terrain that they're in. Hmm. Like a map of 
reality mm-hmm. at a one-to-one scale. Hmm. And they start laying them out and then something else distracts them and they continue their adventure. Huh. So it's, it's, a, it's again, it's this lovely collision of a very objective, cold, storyless, right. scientific um, image, but it leaves, you know, as a, as a human, you relate to it subjectively. And mm-hmm. you, you want to be in that garden and you want to be exploring with them and looking for the answer. And it's a kind of metaphor for us as humans, mm-hmm. looking into why we're here. And Let's go back to Ray Kurzweil, because yeah. the singularity of Sneer was also like, I think that, that that book kind of, I was already somewhat interested in the topic, and then I read that book, and it completely like kind of changed my view of the world in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah, what do you think about the singularity? Do you think that it's, uh, you think it's actually near? Terrifyingly inevitable. Yeah. And the whole issue of whether it's a hard or soft takeoff, meaning... You know, whether it's going to happen overnight Mm -hmm. in a destructive kind of apocalyptic event or whether it's going to be gradual and we're going to merge with technology as we see happening, you know, artificial limbs and eye implants and kind of cyborg technology. Right. I think it's just, it opened up a whole series of possibilities that I'd I'd never even imagined existed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So biologically... I'd studied evolution and knew this vast age of what had happened before us, so mm-hmm. had a glimpse into that world. But then suddenly I could see through Ray Kurzweil's mm-hmm. book and his technological predictions of what, how that's speeding up and what could happen. Mm-hmm. And it's mind-blowing. Yeah. I was almost like, it's as close as I've ever come to having a religious moment, an epiphany. It really is, yeah. And I actually like have to keep myself in check from going on about it too much with, uh, <laughs> depending on the circle of people that I I'm talking with, right? Because you actually do sound almost like a, hmm. like a religious fanatic when you start talking about it because people are like, I think that now it's becoming more common that people are, have heard of it at least and they're kind of aware of it. But yeah, if you start going on about that, sometimes people are like, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> <laughs> But I think that I think that most people today are starting to notice the accelerating pace of technological advancement. I think that they're, you know, even talking to like, you know, my dad or my grandmother, they're just like, things are just going so fast today, like, you know, and it really, really is. Um, how do you think that that's going to affect, I don't know, your life, the life of your children when you're growing up? Do you think about that much? Yeah, I do, especially in terms of the children. I mean, they're both the. My wife's Korean. They were born in Japan. They speak fluent Japanese. Mm-hmm. They're pretty much Japanese, yeah. um, but have English and Korean passports. Mm-hmm. And the world's shrinking. And we're seeing, I think, you know, the, the growing pains that mm-hmm. with these radical fundamental groups that mm-hmm. are highly conservative. Mm-hmm. It's almost Stone Age mentality. And it's becoming starker and starker, the contrast between... Mm-hmm developed, progressive thought and conservative uh, thought that's scared of change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's stuck in a rut. Right. Um, it's right there and under our noses every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do, yeah, I, I try and think positively about it. Mm-hmm. That um, more and more children growing up now will just have a completely different way of thinking about those differences. Mm-hmm. Um, because they embody them, you know, they're born from different cultures in a different place mm-hmm. and can talk to their grandparents at the weekend on a laptop right. and think about time difference 
and look on Google Map and see the world, mm-hmm. you know, Google World, and just a very different upbringing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very exciting way of breaking down boundaries. Yeah. I don't know if you know of the American physicist um, Michiko, uh, Michio Kaku. Kaku. Yeah, yeah the mm-hmm. string theorist. Mm-hmm. Has a very nice short video on YouTube where he talks about different levels of civilization mm-hmm. and how most, if you look at the universe, most civilizations probably find it very difficult to get past civilization level one. Mm-hmm. They either nuke each other right. or they completely pollute their atmosphere and oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, and level two would be a kind of uh, interplanetary civilization mm-hmm. where they they're off the planet, say mm-hmm. Mars, or, mm-hmm. and level three becomes intergalactic and so on. Mm-hmm. And again, this was just another incredible off the charts way of thinking about it. It really is, yeah. The first time I encountered that, I was like, going? wow, like there's actually people that have like classified this and are like keeping track of where we are on the on the big score sheet. And there's serious people, you know, sheet, from right? institutions writing serious books and taking it very seriously and yeah. I think it's fascinating. So if we can make it past level one, uh-huh. you know, the future's bright. We've got folks out there working <laughs> on it right now, right? Like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are competing pretty well right now to get us off the planet. Yeah, I, I regularly watch the, the SpaceX landings and takeoffs uh-huh. just to remember you know, that there's, there's hope. Yeah. You know what really frightens me? Um, I don't know if it frightens me so much, but I think it's kind of a, a daunting uh, possible future is um, after reading about this CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which is like this new gene oh, editing gene technology. It's incredible, out for, yeah. Yeah, it's been out, I think, since 2012. Not yeah. been out, but it's been um, accessible since about 2012. Yeah, very, very powerful. Yeah, it's, it's not, not necessarily a question of if, but when we're going to start hacking our into our own genes. Yeah and where that's going to take us. And I can imagine a possible future where we actually, we, do, we evolve into a, a biologically different species or multiple species. Or we could just be like, you know, this group of, of, of we used to be humans and now we're a myriad of different species because we can change our own genetics at will. And um, just imagining a possible future where I, I see it starting as, in, I see it starting in China. You know, there's going to be, you know, the rich people, they start being able to make their offspring more intelligent, more physically fit, you know, athletically competitive, you know, basically start tweaking the genes of their offspring to, to, to make the perfect person, the perfect child, right? And then, you know, where does it go from there? It just keeps going. And so I can also see another side of the, the, the coin, people that are like just adamantly against it. And so you have this big divergence in, 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 in within the human species. Have you thought about that much? Yeah, a lot. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, it's like back in, I graduated in 98 in uh-huh. molecular biology, which mm-hmm. looking back, is just like prehistoric. So much mm-hmm. has changed. They hadn't even finished the genome project right. by that point. And- um, That was what, 2000? Genome project was completed in 2003, 2003, which is when I just started in, in London at the RCA. Okay. And they were just developing um, what they thought would be like the magic bullet. Mm-hmm. Like putting drugs and pieces of, sorry, putting pieces of genetic material inside viruses mm-hmm. and finding ways to inject that into the genome. Mm-hmm. 
and trying to cure mm-hmm. uh, inherited diseases right. system-wide, like every cell in the body, mm-hmm. which is in- incredible mm-hmm. at the time. But I did, just in that last year, I did experience how the scientific community was setting up regulatory bodies, mm-hmm. how they were going about um, making very stringent tests and examinations mm-hmm. on like the ethics of this and do believe that it can be controlled. Mm-hmm. Like, I've seen how careful they were, right. incredibly careful. Mm-hmm. And the international community of scientists were you know, very thorough. Mm-hmm. But like, like you said, it just takes one rogue scientist somewhere yeah. with benchtop, laptop equipment at the moment mm-hmm. to edit the genome, if you know what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, look at, if you look at the, the nature of the scientific community, it's all about publishing your work and sharing. Yeah. And so all the information out there is, 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 is free and openly available and all you need is the, the proper laboratory equipment to be able to do something like this. And then, you know, you set up shop somewhere and say, hey, you want us to fix your kid for you? You'll have the perfect baby. And I think there's already a huge market for it. I, I would be surprised if it's not already happened under the... Yeah, I don't have a problem with starting with, you know, getting rid of the worst uh-huh. hereditable diseases. Yeah. Um, have, I, I think that's have, probably how it's going to start. Ethic, you have to kind of, if, mm-hmm. you, if you've got the chance to do that, mm-hmm. I think ethically you have to. Yeah. Um, but it becomes grey, you know, mm-hmm. as you tweak certain characteristics. And, mm-hmm. But maybe by this time we'll be the conservatives and, you know, our children or our children's children will be open to change and we'll right. be kind of, oh God. Yeah. Um, there's another book that I would like to recommend to you. Do you know Kevin Kelly? He's the uh, I don't know. Founder, co-founder of Wired Magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's got a book called What Technology Wants. That's right. It's a brilliant title. Yes. Yeah. And it's a brilliant book, too. Right. So he, the whole argument of the book is that, um, is that, what is it, there's seven kingdoms of life? Is that right? Yes. And that technology is actually the eighth kingdom. So it's like it's almost like a like a symbiotic like life form that, that has developed along with us and like where we're going right now is is kind of letting it kind of go out on its own, right? Like it's kind of ridden on the backs of us, we're the tool making monkeys, right? And we've made these tools that they can kind of spin off on its own. Very, very interesting book. Uh, what technology wants. It's actually such a wonderful book, it's really hard to describe succinctly what it is, but that's a very, very nice book. Um, I'm also reading his new book right now called The Inevitable, which is great. It's a bit like Kurzweil's book without it being so far-flung. It's a much more realistic look at what uh, these emerging technologies and the, the advancement and, and the, the acceleration of technological advancement is uh, going to bring us in the near future. Mm. I've been thinking about that recently in terms of my work, mm-hmm. which are starting more and more to feel like memorials to the way things used to be mm-hmm. as a kind of things are about to change so much mm-hmm. and these objects that I'm drawing are kind of hung there this kind of that used to be like this yeah so that, yeah in terms of you know I, I was working with maps of the origins of human language mm-hmm. for one project where scientists had used algorithms that are normally used for marking genetic points Mm -hmm. in evolutionary history they just used the same algorithms on language Mm -hmm. divided up into the little phonemes the little units of sound that people Mm -hmm. make all over the world 
And so, for example, my name in, in, in Japanese, katakana, is maikeru, mm-hmm. ueteru. Yeah. And it's almost double the number of sounds at maiko. Mm-hmm. There's two, right. as opposed to maikeru. Yeah. So the further you get away from Africa, the more complex the sounds used hmm. become. It's hmm. part of what they discovered. But that's almost nothing compared to what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I made this drawing of this kind of big tree of languages mm-hmm. in this empty space floating there. Mm-hmm. And they're almost starting to feel like kind of memorial reeds or some mm-hmm. kind of, this is how it was. Right. You know? So it's, it's interesting just in terms of what you're talking about. Yeah. How much things could possibly change. Right. Which of uh, Kurzweil's predictions are you um, most looking forward to? Which? Of um, all the stuff that he talked about in The Singularity is Near, which are you like, oh, that's going to be really exciting. I really would like that to get here. This is very interesting. <laughs> I think that's kind of a, a boom area. Yeah. Have you heard the term teledildonics? <laughs> Not until now. I can only <laughs> yeah, imagine. the first time I heard it, I just started laughing. But it's basically just what it is. It's like, okay, we won't. Yeah, this is a family podcast. Fine. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah, so it's basically like uh, sex toys that are that are connected to the internet, and you can have right. somebody you know from far away, or your buddy who's overseas, or whatever. Um, yeah. That's a big step up when I was a teenager. I think the first, oh well, when I was younger, the first watches you could see your lover's heart rate on your oh, watch wow. and could guess what they're up to you know as it goes up and down <laughs> during the day that was as close as I came to that kind of connection interesting interesting so um, do you have any kind of like gallery exhibitions or events coming up that you'd like to tell people about yeah what I'm I'm feeling pretty lucky at the moment because mm-hmm. I went through a run of one exhibition after another mm-hmm. and so I'm hoping this year I'm trying not to take on too many projects okay. and just make new work make a right. whole new body of work okay. and make big pieces you know, mm-hmm. not, not design them uh, not worry about framing where they're going to be shown just mm-hmm. make make as big as they need to be mm-hmm. so I feel yeah, very lucky to just have this this year to do that okay. and maybe then look for an exhibition somewhere to show them after that mm-hmm. so it's the opposite of what I've been doing up until now right it's working to deadlines and yeah. with a space in mind right so I think that's going to be great. Okay. Um, is there, if people want to follow you or get in touch with you, is there, are you on Facebook or do you have a web page? Yeah, I have a web page that I yeah. keep updated, michael slash um, Also, Koju Contemporary Art has a lot of my work. Okay. Uh, London would be Man and Eve Gallery mm-hmm. in South London. Okay. And yeah, New York is Daniel Cooney Fine Art. Okay. And I will uh, link to all of these in the show notes. Sure, thank you. People can follow you. And you're on Facebook as well? I am, yeah. Just at Michael Whittle? Yes. Okay, great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for having me to your studio today. It was very, very interesting talking to you, and it was great getting to see your your work and your process. Thanks for the time. Thanks for coming over.